The rich young ruler has come to Jesus Christ seeking eternal life. Our Lord then commands him to go, sell all his possessions and follow him. The rich young man is grieved. He departs away from Christ because he values his possessions more than the Savior and salvation. Our Lord then turns to all his disciples and says, It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eyes of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. It is only by the omnipotent grace of God can a man be saved. Then the disciples respond. And Peter here, in verse 28, is the spokesman of the disciples. And he asks a question. And in the Lord Jesus Christ's answer, we have another kingdom lesson. Gain through loss. It is by forsaking all things do we gain. It is only by forsaking all things for Christ's sake do we gain. And this lesson from Jesus Christ will be a great encouragement to brothers and sisters all around the world. Christianity is costly. It has cost us reputation, money, family, even our own lives. And Christ will teach us all who lose shall gain more than we can fathom. And so, what exactly do we learn from this passage? First of all, the disciples' loss. Secondly, the disciples' gain. And then thirdly, the disciples' humility. So first of all, the disciples' loss. Verses 17 to 31 is one section. I know we've had three sermons on these sections, but it is one period of time. It's a sequence. And Peter has been listening and watching. He's listened to the master. He's watched the interaction with the rich young ruler and the saviour. And so there he comes with a question in verse 28. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. Left here means to let something go. Sometimes, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's used for the word of divorce. You let go the spouse. In Luke chapter 7, the word is used for forgiveness of sins, where our sins are let go from the wrath and judgment of God because Christ has dealt with them. Isn't that just a wonderful picture? That he says, is it in Malachi, is it Micah, where it says that all our sins will, if you like, let go. They're cast in the depths of the sea, the guilt and condemnation never, ever 
to come upon the people of God. But the basic word means simply to let something go. And here, as Peter is saying, we have let everything go for the sake of following Jesus Christ. And he's right. They have done that. If you read your Gospels and the life of the Apostles, they have left everything for Jesus Christ. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, Jesus Christ comes along the sea and he sees Peter and Andrew. And he says, I am called you to be fishers of men. Come. And verse 18 says, And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. So their own job, their own businesses, they have just left it all for the sake of Christ. And then Christ comes to the two brothers, James and John, and again he calls them. And verse 20 says, And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Nothing got in the way of Christ. Not their father, not their business, nothing. And then Matthew, he's someone with a prominent business. He would have been quite wealthy, some level of degree of wealth at least, as a tax collector. And then Jesus Christ came to him in chapter 2 verse 14 of Mark. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom and said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. So for these disciples, they are not like the rich young ruler. They will not just grab things or try to add Jesus to their lives, but they will let these things go. They will forsake them and they will follow after Jesus Christ. And this is a mark of true Christianity, of a true convert, of a true disciple of our Lord Jesus. They leave all things. They let all things go. They forsake all things for Christ's sake. And verse 29, our Lord even confirms that as he describes a disciple where he says, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that have left, forsaken, let go of house, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, Children, lands for my sake and the Gospels. Is this me? Is this you? Have you let go of all things for Christ? Now what exactly does that mean though? Well, let's start with the positive. It means Christ is the most valuable person. Nothing is comparable to him and you give up your entire life for him. That's what it means. You remember our Lord Jesus Christ in Mar- Matthew chapter 13, 44 to 45. What he says of the parable of 
What's it like to be a Christian? What's it like to be in the kingdom of heaven? And he says this. The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Christ is that pearl of great price. Christ is that treasure. His person as the God man. His offices of prophet, priest, and king. His work of obedience and reconciliation, satisfaction, his whole atonement. The benefits that flow from him in union with Christ. Regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, glory. He is so valuable, the person is prepared to give their whole entire lives for him. When you read the Psalms, it is the Christian experience explained. And there are many popular, well-known phrases in the Psalms which shows how precious and valuable God is. Think of Psalm 16. Thou art the Lord, the portion of my inheritance. You're the most precious thing to me, Lord. It's not my field, it's not my family, it's not my children, it's not my work, it's not my status. You are my portion. Or in Psalm 73, when Asaph, he's he's looking at heaven and the glories of heaven and all the promises of heaven, and he says, but there's only one thing I really look for in heaven, and that's you, Lord. Then he takes a look at the earth and everything that it contains, and he says, there's only one desire there, and that's you, Lord. And that's the true believer. So persuaded at the preciousness and the valuable of Jesus Christ and everything that belongs to him. That he and her are prepared to give their whole lives to him. And therefore they leave all things for him. But what exactly do we mean leaving, let going, forsaking all things? Well, there's a spiritual and literal aspect to it. First of all, the spiritual aspect. A spiritual forsaking of all things is to cease to have any idolatrous trust, love, care, identity, meaning, or purpose in anything in this world. And you're to have your trust, ultimate love, care, meaning, purpose, and identity in Jesus Christ. And in this spiritual forsaking, 
every single person must have. You must forsake, leave, let go of any trust, care, meaning, purpose, identity in everything and look to Christ alone. But second, there's a literal forsaking. When something is either tempting you to sin or is a compromise to Jesus Christ and the gospel, you must literally let go of it and leave it. Now, our Lord doesn't leave this in the realm of the abstract. In verse 29, he gives us very, very concrete examples of how we are to spiritually and literally forsake all things for his sake. And he begins with the home. There is no man that have left house. It is literally a house. It's your home. This can be a physical house. You could even extend it to someone's city, state, or nation. The home is an example of where you belong. There's no place like home. Home, sweet home. I enjoyed my travels, I enjoyed my journeys, but I am thankful to be home. Because that's the place that represents your belonging, your identity, your comfort, your day-to-day existence. And your home can be an idol where your trust, your care, your comfort, your meaning, your identity is wrapped up in your house. Be it your physical house, your city, your state, or your nation. And a Christian must spiritually forsake house. Give up any trust, meaning, purpose, identity, in your house, city, state, and nation, so that Jesus Christ alone is your comfort, meaning, identity. This is not to deny that we cannot enjoy our house. This is not to deny, to deny you can't be patriotic about your country. Nothing wrong with that at all. But if it's an idol... If it's causing you to put Christ second or third or fourth or fifth, then it must be forsaken. Spiritually, it must be. Because Philippians chapter 3 says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Our king is Jesus Christ. Our constitution is the living word of God. And so far as a nation or a house is subordinate, that's fine. But any sort of compromise 
it must be literally forsaken. How many brothers and sisters in the centuries had the choice of being faithful to God or having their house? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 38. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in dens and the caves of the earth. Be faithful to Jehovah and leave your house. Compromise Jehovah and remain. How many early church men and women, if they could compromise Jesus Christ, they could remain in their house or their city or their nation, but they would not. So they literally forsake their house and they must move lands. Think of Geneva in the 1500s. Was that not a city of refuge? as thousands of men, women, and children were either given the idea of you can forsake Jesus Christ alone or compromise and live in your house, your city, and your land, but if you choose Christ more than the Pope, then you must leave your house, your city, or your land. And thousands gladly gave up their homes their cities, their nations, because Christ is more valuable and therefore they move to Geneva. How many brothers and sisters today in this world, an Islamic nation or uh, communist nations or other nations, where if they compromise Christ, they can sit at home safe and sound. But if they want to be faithful to Christ, then they must give up their homes. And how many brothers and sisters have done just that? So we're all called to spiritually give up our house when it comes to having our trust, our meaning, our purpose, and our identity. But if it's called for, we gladly give up our house, our city, and our nation and go wherever God would call us, just like Abraham Secondly, family. He mentions fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and wives and children. Christ, as a true believer, has forsaken even these. Except you've let go of your family, you cannot be saved. Again, what does it mean to let go? Spiritually, your trust, your meaning, your purpose, your identity. If any of one of these things is in parents, children, brothers, or sisters, it is idolatry and you cannot be a disciple. And Christ says that black and white in Luke chapter 14. He says, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. All means all here. Then he says in verse 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. 
If we love our children more than Christ, we cannot be his disciple. Husbands, if you love your wife more than Jesus Christ, you cannot be his disciple. Wives, if you love your husbands more than Christ, you cannot be his disciple. This again does not deny the biblical command to rightly, proportionately love family, love wife and husband and children. It dishonors and disglorifies God if we do not love these as the Bible calls us to. But if it's an idolatrous love, if your family is your meaning and purpose and identity of life, there's the sin, there's the idol, there's the non-disciple, says Christ. Because you can have your family, but at the end of the day, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if we have not given our lives for Christ, depart from me into everlasting flames. And so Christ says we are to spiritually leave, let go of all things, including our families. But it might mean you have to literally let go. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 38, Jesus says you are going to be persecuted from your own household. He says, I haven't come to bring peace on this world. I've come with a sword. To set father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, and so on and so forth. Because there's going to be times when a family member or family situation will say, it's either me or Christ. It's either me or keeping the Sabbath. It's either me or being obedient to God. Which one will you choose? The compromiser will choose family and twist the word and water down the word. But the true disciple does not want to ever literally let go of anyone. But if they're called to it, Christ is so much more precious and they will. If we have a Muslim in this city, and we evangelize this Muslim. And this Muslim comes to Jesus Christ. That Muslim would have to make this decision. Because it's not like many of our families where they might at best respect. And might at worst laugh and mock and not understand. And that Muslim has to make the decision, my family or not. If you go to many parts of the world, being a Christian is not putting a little picture on your t-shirt or a, a fish badge on your car. It is literally to give up your family. And Jesus is saying, true disciples, if it comes to the compromise, will let go of their family for Christ's sake and the gospel's sake. And then thirdly, it says to give up lands. This just means financial resources, your provisions, your inheritance. Nothing wrong with having lands or resources or inheritance. We've already said that last sermon. 
but spiritually we don't find our meaning, our purpose, our love, our trust, our identity in these things. We do not trust in riches. We're not like the rich young ruler. We're not like the rich men of Jesus' teaching in the previous section. If God gives us riches, we enjoy them and use them for his glory, but we do not idolize them. But we may have to literally give them up. John Elias was a well-known preacher in Wales in the 1700s, 1800s. His wife was from a very, very prominent rich family. And they absolutely hated, hated evangelical religion. And when John Elias started to court uh, this young woman, the father came down and said, simply stop this or you're disinherited and you lose everything. Go marry any man but not an evangelical. But she valued Christ more than anything. And she gave up her inheritance. And when she married John Elias for decades, they were so poor. She had to work a full-time job so that he could go around preaching the word. And she suffered greatly in poverty. But she believed it was worth it for Christ's sake. And so the Christian life is a life of forsakenness. That's why in our membership vows, one of the vows is we are forsaking all things for Christ. Christianity is not easy believism. Christianity is not just saying a prayer. Christianity is not simply you believe in a Christian worldview. Christianity is to see Jesus Christ as so valuable, you'll give your whole life to him. You may lose all things as a Christian, but is it worth it? Is it worth it? Peter has that same question, and that's why he says here in verse 28, we have left all things and have followed thee, But Mark omits what Matthew has. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, it says this, Peter said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Jesus, you say a true believer is someone who forsakes all things. Okay, we've done that. But since we've forsaken all things, what shall we have? So many commentators here want to attack Peter. But this is a good question. When you suffer loss in the Christian life, do you not ask, I have lost this. What is the Lord's purpose? Why is he doing it? What have I to gain out of it? Elsewhere, when Peter asks foolish questions, there's some sort of rebuke. Sometimes it's a stronger rebuke. Sometimes it's a lesser rebuke. No rebuke here. And he answers him. So it's a good question. Jesus, we have left all things. We've forsaken all things. What shall we receive? 
And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is not man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold. Whatever you lose for my sake, you will gain a hundred times more. This is simply speaking of God's abundant riches and his grace towards his people. In Genesis 26.12 it says, Isaac sowed in that land and received the same year a hundredfold and the Lord blessed him. It says in Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the seeds with the last seed that grows and is fertile shall bear a hundredfold fruit. It is simply saying Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. You've lost, you've forsaken, you've left all. You've suffered the cost of following me. Do not think it is vain. I am so pleased and rejoicing over your faithfulness and obedience to believe in me and follow me that I will give you a hundred more than you have lost. Is that not an encouragement? For any Christian who has spiritually forsaken all things to the other Christian who has literally forsaken things for Christ. You will receive a hundredfold. When? No. No. Look at those words. 30. No in this time. You don't have to wait. You have to wait till you die. You don't have to wait till you go to heaven. You don't have to wait till you go to glory. Right here, right now in this life, you'll receive a hundredfold now. And what is this hundredfold blessing we received for forsaking all things in Christ? Well, again, Christ gives us particulars. Houses. It's not house singular, like the previous one which you lost. Houses, plural, you gain a hundredfold. Because when you are a disciple, you enter a new house. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6. It's comparing Moses, who was a servant, comparing to Christ, who was a son. And it says, but Christ as a son over his house, whose house are we? So the house is the church, the people of God. And Jesus Christ is a son over the house, the church. And Christ's person, loveliness, grace, goodness, mercy, abundant riches of his blessing is given to his house, the church. In Acts, when you're saved, what does it say? You're added to the church. 
In Acts chapter 2, it says, The Lord added to his church such as would be saved. Because when you're saved, you're never saved alone unto yourself. You're always saved unto the church, the people of God. And Jesus Christ gives particular blessings of grace to the church so that the church blesses everyone in the church. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Use hospitality one to another without grudging, as every man hath received the gift. Even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So how do you gain a hundredfold houses? By literally having free access to manifold houses. Because Christians have received grace. And they've received homes with food and beds and lodgings. They are to be good stewards of that home. Not keep it and use it for themselves selfishly, but for the purpose of sharing it with other church and Christians. And therefore we are to use hospitality. That is to have people eat, be washed, and to lodge in your home for Christ's sake. And so when you are a believer who has lost a home, you will literally have houses. Because Christians out of an abundance of generosity and love will open their home at all times for you. And you have access to their fellowship, their company, their food, and their beds. I've experienced this myself. In three different continents. Where Christians have opened their homes to me. And said you can come here anytime. I've lodged in homes. I've eaten in homes. I fellowshiped in homes. And someone once said to me, if I'm ever homeless, you're never going to be homeless. My home is always open to you. And brothers and sisters around the world who have left all things for Christ have gained a church, a house with houses. And brothers and sisters used hospitality to host them and feed them and wash them and lodge them. Just like the Apostle Paul, he just turns up to Caesarea, Philippi. He just knocks on the door of Philip the Evangelist and Philip the Evangelist says, stay with us in Acts chapter 19. And they stayed with him. But we should be the blessing too. Do you use your home? If a Christian stranger turned up at your door, would you lodge them or would you send them on their way? If you send them on their way, are you being used of God to bless people or curse people? Does everyone in this house, in this church, this house of God, have access to your home for fellowship, for company, for food, for lodging. Be a blessing to others. It is more blessed to give than to receive, Christ says. 
And we can be this hundredfold blessing to other people all around the world by having our homes opened to them. But secondly, Christ says we gain a hundredfold in family, fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and children. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 15 says, God the Father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Because when you're a true disciple, you have a spiritual family in heaven above, with God your Father in heaven, with your elder brother in heaven, and all your brothers and sisters from the Old Testament and church history there in heaven. And you have all your brothers and sisters on earth, all around the world. In John 19, 27, our Lord Jesus on the cross comes to John and says, John, behold thy mother. And he says to his mother, behold thy son. That's their spiritual relationship here on in. In Romans 16, 13, Paul says, Rufus, your mother and my mother also, because she was my spiritual mother in the faith. Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, Timothy, you are my son in the faith. Spiritual family. And this is a wonderful experience for all saints, that you might lose your family, but you gain a greater family. From my own experience, again, people often ask me who don't know me, and says, oh, do you miss Scotland? Do you miss your family? I have no real physical family in Scotland. None that want to see me anyway. Don't know my dad. Mother doesn't want to speak to me. Siblings, no contact. But yes, I have a family in Scotland. My church family, my spiritual family. Just like I have here in America. And we can know that you may have lost father, mother, sister, brother, and so on and so forth, but you have the spiritual family of God to love you and keep you and encourage you and build you up. But sometimes I think in the church today we miss this. I think we put a priority in physical family over spiritual family, and that's unbiblical. Now, do not get me wrong again. I'm not denying there's biblical obligations for us to love and do our responsibility in our physical family. Absolutely. But the spiritual family is more important. The waters of baptism are thicker than the blood. And the blood of Christ is thicker than any blood between blood. When someone came to Jesus Christ and says, Jesus, your mother and your brother and your sisters are outside. He says, who? Who's my mother? Who's my brother? Who's my sister? Whoever does the will of God is my mother. Family is only temporary. Spiritual family is eternal. In heaven, there's no family structures. There's no husband and wives. There's no children. There's no households. As Matthew 19, Jesus says, we're all about the angels in heaven. But there's spiritual brothers and spiritual sisters. And yes, some of our physical relatives will be our spiritual mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers, of course. 
But I think the church today is so often over-obsessed on the family and not enough on the spiritual family of God. We need to be balanced. We need to be proportionate. We need to be biblically faithful. But we need to take seriously and more serious the doctrine of adoption and its outworkings. So be that spiritual mother and father and sister and brother and son in this congregation. Older men, it is your God-given duty to be a spiritual father to the younger ones. Do that. Meet up with them. Spend time with them. Teach them. Older women, it is your biblical Titus 2 obligation to spend time with the younger women, to be mothers with them, and even to us men, to be spiritual mothers to us. And everyone should be spiritual brothers and sisters and sons and children. Thirdly, resources. He says we'll be given a hundredfold of lands. In Acts chapter 2, verses Uh, 45, it says, And they sold their possessions and good and parted them to all men as every man had need. And the next verse, they went house to house eating and they were all glad. Because in the house of God, we share one another's resources so that no one lacks. That's why in the day of judgment in Matthew 25, if you have a brother or a sister... And they need food, water, shelter, or visitation, and you don't do it, you'll be cast into hell. But out of love, when you see someone in need, you provide the water, you provide the clothing on their back, you provide them a house to live in, you visit them in their need. James chapter 2 says, Do you want to know what true faith is? I'll show you my faith by my works. If there's a brother in need, I don't say the Lord be with you. I'm going to pray for you and hope that the Lord gives you. No, I'm going to actually help that brother and provide for them. That's true Christianity. And when that's alive, someone who has left all things and has no more resources, no more possession, no more inheritance, they need help. The church of Jesus Christ will come to help them and provide for them, get them on their feet. And then through their own labors, of course, they can work and help others. And then fourthly, we are so blessed, our hundredfold blessing comes with persecutions. And you might stop and say, what now? Okay, I get it. Blessedness with a house, blessedness with family, blessedness with resources, blessed with persecution. Yes, persecution is a blessing. Matthew chapter 5, 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. None of us seeks persecution. None of us desires persecution. But if we live godly, ye shall be persecuted, Peter says. And when it happens, it's a blessing. When people are reviling you, hating you, and calling you all manner of things, falsely, keyword there, falsely, you're blessed of God. Why? First Peter chapter 1, 
when we're persecuted, it's the trial of our faith like gold and fire. How do you know gold is false or true? Put in the fire. If it's fake, it'll just melt up. If it's pure, it will contain. If there's any infirmities or improperties, boom, burned up and the purity comes out. So how do you know you're a true Christian? Persecution. In Mark chapter 4, in the parable of the seeds again, how do you know you're a true Christian? It says, some believe for a time, but because of persecution, they fall away. But a true believer will trust in God, be obedient to God, and to be faithful to God, and you'll prove that you're a genuine Christian. Also, it's one of the sources of your joy and sanctification. James chapter 1. He says, count it all joy when we're persecuted and suffering. Why? Because it will sanctify us. It will produce in us faith and perseverance and experience and prayer and so forth. It also helps you to keep the law of God. Psalm 119 throughout, it says things like, I thank God for my afflictions so that I might run after the law. Because persecution helps me to know the right paths. And persecution, suffering, and affliction has steered me to follow God above all things. And so it's a blessing. Fifthly, he says, you receive a hundredfold in the world to come. This is not now, of course. This is your future blessing. The word world is not the word world, it's the word for age, in the age to come. Right now we're in the present evil age, Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 and in Titus 2. And the age to come is when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he changes all things, and we enter the final state. And that's confirmed for us in Matthew's parallel where he says, in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory. So when will be the regeneration of all things? In the future when the Lord Jesus returns in his glory. And for all your loss, it is worth it. Your soul is going to be perfected in sanctification. Your soul one day is going to be sinless. Your thinking is going to be sinless. Your faith is going to be sinless. Your love and your joy and all the graces and gifts of your soul, sinless and perfect. Your bodies right now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, are going to be changed. You're weak, earthly, Corruptible bodies are going to be changed into incorruptible, powerful, heavenly, spiritual bodies. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And the whole universe is going to be glorified. There's going to be no curse, no sin, no war. No sickness, no disease, no persecution, no suffering, no tears, no anxiety, no worry. 
You're going to be with the saints of every generation. Gathered together as one huge choir singing worthy as the Lamb. And you're going to see something that no one has seen before. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses says, show me thy glory. God says, Moses, I can't because if you see my glory, you will die. And in John 17, 24, Jesus, who is Jehovah incarnate, says, Father, I will that they may be with, where, be with me where I am so that they may behold my glory. And that's the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, you will see what Moses could not. And as you see intellectually and visually the divine glory radiating through Jesus Christ, you'll be taken up in a transcendental blessedness with the fullness of joy. In the presence of the Lord, Psalm 16. And when Paul writes to suffering, persecuted Christians in Romans, what does he say in chapter 8? The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be comprehended and compared to the glory which shall be revealed. And that's yours for your loss. It's worth it, Peter. It's worth it. But then finally, and very, very briefly, the humility. He says, but the first shall be last and the last shall be first. We looked at this last chapter. To be first is to look for self and for self-pleasure and self-gain. And you believe you deserve something. Last means that you deny yourself for Christ and you serve all. Because the danger is here is, I deserve that glory. I deserve the hundredfold for my losing the one. I deserve benefits for my faithfulness to Christ. And you merit nothing. As Jesus says elsewhere, uh, teaches elsewhere, we're all unprofitable servants. Stay humble. Stay dependent on God. Know everything is by the grace of God, but know this. If you're forsaken all things for Christ, you receive a hundredfold here, right now, and in the age to come. Let us pray.